BSD Now, in this episode, will present you FreeBSD 11.3 Beta 1, the recap of BSD CAN 2019, Open Indiana 2019-04 is out, uh, we also give you an overview of ZFS pools and FreeNAS, and why open source firmware is important for security, as well as a new OpenSense release and WireGuard on OpenBSD in this week's episode of BSD. Now... BSD Now, episode 300, the big three, recorded on the 29th of May, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Woohoo, we made it to the big 300. Wow, that is certainly an impressive number. Yes, that's a lot of episodes every single week without ever taking a week off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've I'm just so came in at the last minute, uh, but yeah, it's definitely impressive. So yeah, you can send your congratulations to our Twitter account or to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, but first, you should listen to this episode because we have headlines for you as every week. Uh, that start with FreeBSD 11.3 Beta 1 has been uh, made available. Yep. Uh, so if you are using 11.2 and want to smooth upgrade to 11.3, you should uh, start testing that out right away. And uh, if there are any issues, we want to get them ironed out before the final release so that you can do a nice smooth minor upgrade from 11.2 to 11.3 uh, and have everything just work. Yeah. The more bugs that are squashed, they won't be in the uh, final release then. Uh, I see they have a note regarding ARM SD card images. Uh, that's um, basically telling us that for convenience, for those without console access to the system, a FreeBSD user with a password of FreeBSD is available by default for SSH access. Ah, I see. Uh, useful when you're going to put it on something that might not have a screen attached to it. Mm, so you can but, uh, they make sure to tell you so. Ah, and then, of course, they recommend to change that password afterwards because uh, otherwise you have um, a backdoor or someone could get in by knowing that. Um, but other than that, uh, download uh, locations are available as well as checksums and uh, partition layouts for people who need to uh, be aware of that. But yeah, that's definitely a good thing to test uh, on a virtual machine or a real hardware if you have that available and see what the new uh, features are available in 11.3 that are backported from uh, from head or from even yeah, stable. Basically, 11.2 with all the security updates and other improvements and fixes uh, and new stuff yeah, I remember. all ready to go. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of those while we were away. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, then you have that all-in-one uh, ISO image or uh, release and then can get started on that. So that's a short headline. The next one is a bit bigger because we, well, two weeks ago, was it two weeks? Yeah, almost seemed like yesterday. BSD CAN 2019 has been uh, an amazing event as always. So that's our recap here in the headlines. So, wow, it was certainly a very packed week. So two weeks ago, um, the first thing was, of course, you know, arriving and all that. Um for some people, that was a short <laughs> trip, and others were a bit uh, longer. Um, so, 
the first uh, event or the official event of BSD Can was on Tuesday. Uh, Beehive Con, I guess. That's a new thing this year. Uh, I didn't go to that one because I was uh, busy in uh, meetings the whole uh, day. I did. Uh, it was good. There were presentations from Beehive on a bunch of different platforms. Or, uh, broadened a bit to just uh, virtualization. So there was talk about uh, Beehive on FreeBSD and Illumos. Um, NVMM on NetBSD, VMM on OpenBSD. Uh, and then there was uh, Chuck talked a bit about his uh, NVMe emulation for Beehive, in particular using it to actually uh, inject errors and stuff to do things that it's harder to do with real hardware, uh, mm -hmm. like make it fail predictably to something that's nearly impossible with real hardware. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's good to have that uh, redundancy then, or that resiliency, res resiliency even, so before it gets into real metal, or a release is tested this way. Okay, and then uh, in the evening of that, there was the official goat buff, where everyone basically who arrived that day or the day before uh, came together in the uh, Royal Oak Bar and um, had a basically meet and greet, and the goat was certainly among them. Yeah, uh, I got to talk to a bunch of people and hang out, and it was a good time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spent the, the evening in the uh, journal editorial board meeting, so we were basically thinking about what should be the next issues and who should be the people writing for the journal, so who should be the authors we should ask, and um, that was a good planning session, uh, roughly two hours, uh, with uh, good input uh, about future issues. A again, FreeBSD Journal is free for people who haven't noticed yet, so you can uh, stay tuned for more interesting uh, issues coming up. Okay, then on Wednesday, uh, these are the two tutorial days for BSD CAN, and the uh, FreeBSD Dev Summit is in parallel to that, so also two days, the Wednesday and the Thursday. And that was, uh, as always, a packed schedule. I mean, there's already a, a lot of people in that room, but then you have to think about the next couple of days where the actual conference starts as even more people. Um, so BSD CAN this year was roughly, uh, by dance numbers, 200, 205, yeah. 220. 220-ish, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, that was a good outcome, although less than last year. Um, but the Dev Summit was as uh, full as always, and um, the morning sessions had uh, presentations uh, by the FreeBSD Foundation, by Intel, and who am I forgetting? Uh, there was another one. NetApp. NetApp, of course, yeah. Uh, so the slides there are available on the FreeBSD Wiki, as well as... Um, the links to the recordings are in our show notes because um, those uh, whole two days were recorded as well as the um, conference. And um, the afternoon sessions in uh, both Wednesday and uh, Thursday had um, different working groups. So the first day had a networking uh, group, uh, Failsafe Boot Code. That's your session, Alan, right? Yeah, uh, we worked on how to make it so that... Uh, because with ZFS, we have to update the boot code uh, relatively frequently every time there's new ZFS features. Compared to in the past with UFS, we had like the same boot code for 10 years or more. Um, means that we needed a way to be able to safely update the boot code. Or to basically, to have two boot codes and fail back and forth between them, kind of like NanoBSD or whatever. So that you'd be able to try new boot code and make sure it works and then upgrade or whatever. And we also talked about integrating support for zpool checkpoints uh, so that you could say, create a checkpoint, do zpool upgrade, and boot off the new boot code. And if something goes wrong, you could undo the zpool upgrade so that 
you would actually be able to still boot off the older boot code. Oh, that's certainly a good feature to have. A bunch of things like that, and just trying to, in general, get things more in line with how we'd like them to be. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Uh, so there was uh, another session, uh, swap space management. I didn't track that too much. Uh, and another one, uh, testing NCI uh, by Li Wen and all the things that he already built and is planning to build into the, the CI testing framework that we have. So that sounds interesting as a session. Uh, the notes from those sessions are also on the FreeBSD wiki in case you're interested. And then the Friday had a similar format uh, with an update from the FreeBSD core team. And that was then followed by the Have Need One session for FreeBSD 13, uh, which is coming out in like a year and a half, if everything goes well. And again, in the afternoon, there were working groups about translation, uh, packaging base, which was uh, well attended, I guess, uh, GSOC and Outreachy, uh, or a general hackathon if you were not interested in any of those topics. Uh, and on that afternoon, I held my Isinga tutorial in, uh, at the BSD CAN. That's why I um, uh, spoke at, uh, not at the conference, but at the uh, tutorial. And there were 15 people attending, and it was a good session. Um, we had a couple of uh, interesting discussions afterwards. And so um, that certainly, um, and some of, some of the recommendations that people had in the room are also now part of the uh, future tutorial that I will give. So each time there's... Um, stuff updated or um, slides corrected, small things like that. And yeah, as we mentioned, um, uh, Scale Engine uh, did all the streaming for the, uh, and the video recordings for the events, so that was nice, so people who weren't there uh, could at least uh, listen to the audio. And uh, you can find all these recordings, they're ready already, uh, on FreeBSD's YouTube channel that we have also linked in the show notes. So that's a new thing, and I uh, guess it will grow over the years as the central place to uh, be, yeah, SD, um, for all the presentations or the conferences where... Well, this, uh, or the the, the ones summits. that are posted there are from the Dev Summit. It's not the conference mm -hmm. videos. Oh, yeah, right. Conference is separate, um, but... Yeah, the those will go up on the BSD account as soon as they're ready. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good way... Um, if you want to stay up uh, with the FreeBSD uh, developer summits, then subscribe to that channel and you're already uh, getting notifications about anything that's new. Okay, that was the two days of tutorial slash dev summit. And then the two days of conference started because that wasn't already exciting enough. Um, so yeah, remember yeah, so after even more people. Dan's, uh, short opening session, we uh, I went to the how ZFS snapshots really work and uh, Learn some more about that. Uh, I knew some of it, but there's been some improvements to make its uh, scale slightly better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was an invited talk. Uh, so Matt Aaron spoke there and had a good presentation. I guess some of the presentations are also up on the uh, BSD CAN website. I should check that. If that I think particular uh, one most of them have the slides, but I don't think any videos are posted yet. Yeah, that, that needs some more time, but at least um, speakers were... Um, asked to upload their slides after they uh, gave their presentations. And, yes. uh, yeah. and the key takeaway from Matt's talk is uh, try not to have more than 10,000 snapshots on any one data set. You can have mm -hmm. many across <laughs> your whole pool, but each data set, uh, if you go over 10,000, it gets really slow. Yeah, just listing them and working through the, well, through the whole list. Uh, anyway, watch the talk and you'll understand. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that, those have the details. Uh, then I went to the um, 20 Years in Jail by Michael W. Lucas, basically uh, covering what his book is covering in a, a shorter format. Um, and that was very detailed and uh, talked about, you know, what kind of cool things you can do with FreeBSD jails. Uh, yeah. Then there was the uh, OpenZFS BOF session led by you and Matt Ahrens. Yep. Uh, the slightly longer than usual lunch break this year was really nice for that. Uh, actually allowed me as a speaker to get in line, get some lunch, and start eating it before I had to give the BOF. Uh, <laughs> and it also meant that people still waiting in line to get lunch weren't excluded from the beginning of the BOF. So it worked out very nicely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good um, change to the schedule. Although, you know... I. I could have just as easily had fun going to the, one of the other boffs. There was the uh, networking for sysadmins and uh, amateur radio and SDR. Uh, I've not really had an interest in amateur radio and SDR much before, but lately been looking at um, using software-defined radio to capture uh, FM microphones from conferences and using them as the audio for the live stream. Ah, ah yeah, yeah, that, that could be a thing. Um, yeah, uh, unfortunately, the boffs weren't recorded because it's difficult, you know, with the because the audience is speaking and you have to have a, a mic walking around. So um, those were only for the people who were uh, at uh, the conference themselves. But um, I guess some of notes were taken or people uh, post in their private blogs about it. Um, then there was the future of OpenZFS and FreeBSD by Alan, which I, of course, attended uh, because he debunked some myths around the, oh my god, it's it's everything is on Linux now, or what? Uh, so that's not what it's going to be. And I guess his presentation made very clear that this is a common repo now where everything is uh, kept and everyone pulls well, from. Yeah, but it's the plan. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was basically as FreeBSD is changing its upstream source of ZFS, to be open ZFS from the Linux repo instead of open ZFS from the Lumos repo, uh, we're going to get a bunch of new features and other good stuff. But uh, as it actually, uh, as we finish that process, once um, the bits from FreeBSD are actually upstreamed into that repo uh, and FreeBSD is using that, uh, that repo will actually be renamed. It will not have the name Linux on it anymore. It'll just be the open ZFS repo and there'll be uh, OS subdirectory with FreeBSD and Linux, and then the Mac and Windows versions are going to come over to that as well. And basically, we well, should hopefully end up uh, over time with every uh, version of ZFS, every uh, OS that's using ZFS, uh, having all their code come from the same repo. That way, uh, changes to ZFS can be tested on all the platforms um, that easily and uh that everybody will have access to the latest code and it won't be each project having to expend the extra effort of porting all the changes from all the other projects over to it and mm -hmm. we can try to you know make it so that everybody can just use the one set of code yeah there's less confusion where do i pull my stuff from so all one upstream and they exchange ideas and future directions in this leadership calls, actually, that you attended the last time, yesterday, uh, the, was the, there one? Yeah, there was one yesterday, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ah, excellent. So um, they're open to anyone, and they're recorded, so anyone can see where this is going or participate even. So this is um, the open nature of that. 
And so um, I didn't see any other talks on the first day because I spent a lot of time this year in the hallway track. And I will go. So I guess I will have to rewatch a couple of talks that I did miss. Um, but they're recorded and that's what they're for. And so I could talk to people more and, uh, you know, they had a chance to uh, chat with me. And so that's, I think, a good um, use of my time at the conference. Uh, but the next day I went to my uh, roommates MQTT for system administrators by Jan Piet Menz. Um, greetings at this point. Uh, so that was certainly interesting. He had a very uh, lively talk and an interesting talk. He passed around some devices and gave a, a live demo, uh, which didn't break uh, by all, uh, even though the Wi-Fi wasn't very um, helpful in this regard. But that that worked quite well. So that gave a good um, view about you know what MQTT is, how these um, messaging systems work, and uh, what they can do. Yeah, um, I went to the Cherry VSD one to see Brooks's. I had uh, I knew a bit about what Cherry was, but I had missed uh, the last couple of presentations on it uh, and didn't know some of the details. And actually seeing how far they've gotten with it, it was uh, very interesting to me. Although I also would have liked to have gone to the uh, Mac Grant by Label um, talk that Simon Garrity was doing, using mm -hmm. the mandatory access control framework in FreeBSD to do to control uh, privilege escalation. Yeah. So you so, yeah. have certain tools do certain things and stuff like that. And then for the second slot, I went to uh, Chuck Toofley's uh, Frankenstein's disk drive, which talked more about the, a little bit about how NVMe works and then what he did with his um, Beehive emulation work. So while at BeehiveCon, he focused on the Beehive side of it, uh, in this talk, he talk, uh, focused on the the actual uh, NVMe and, and general use purpose of this. And in particular, talked about trying to actually recreate uh, a ZFS problem that somebody had had in production where they were using the wrong kind of NVMe device as a slog, uh, the write log in ZFS, yeah. and eventually wore out the 1.2 petabyte write endurance of the disk. Uh, and so the disk switched to being read-only. Basically, all the flash was worn out and couldn't be written anymore. So it's like, you can read all your data off this because that won't hurt the drive. But if I let you write more, it's you're going to lose data. So the drive uh, protected itself. Of course, ZFS is like, this, this disk is refusing to my writes. What do you want me to do about it? <laughs> um, and it caused some weird behavior, and they were trying to reproduce that uh, by creating... Uh, an NVMe device in Beehive that after 5,000 writes would just become read-only. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, you know, thwacking it and seeing what happens. <laughs> yeah, that's a good use for uh, virtual systems or emulated systems. Yep. Uh, then at lunchtime, I went to the BSD user group BOF. Uh, we kind of combined knowledge from a bunch of different user groups, uh, including... Um, Nicholas wasn't there, but I added some context from the uh, Swedish user group. Uh, Marius provided uh, from the um, the Polish one. Uh -huh. um, then Andrew from OpenBSD, uh, Andrew Fresh, uh, talked about the Portland BSD Pizza Nights and uh, specifically mentioned how if you tell a certain podcast about your user group, it can double the number of people that show up. Huh, I guess I know what podcast he's yes. referring to. Uh, and so actually one of the action items out of that one was um, getting 
kind of a calendar setup again, kind of like Drew used to do with the BSD events thing. Mm. Uh, but uh, one of the other people who happen to be in the room runs an existing system like this for uh, music sessions, jam sessions oh. or whatever, um, and has a system to, you know, keep poking the user group and make sure it's still alive. Uh, oh, have to, that's important. So that uh, you don't tell people to go to user groups that aren't around anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that um, kind of be bad. bad. And some stuff like that. Uh, and then uh, Peter Hessler shared some contacts from when he used to run one in San Francisco and so on. And we definitely had good takeaways from that, like doing it reliably. Uh, turns out to be really important to keeping the, uh, the audience up, which, again, something I mentioned that we try to do with the podcast is one of the reasons why we make sure there's an episode every single week is because some people... If uh, they take a couple weeks off because there weren't episodes or whatever, then they forget to come back. Yeah. And I mean, it's the reason we, we do these things, because we want to inform people about these things. And if there weren't any listeners, then, mm -hmm. yeah, that defeats the purpose. But if there's a user group, it's kind of, it could serve the same kind of function. Yep. Uh, then I went to Scott Phillips' talk, which was... Um, FreeBSD from a Linux developer's perspective. Uh, so he was a Linux developer for many years, I think 10 or 15 or more years, and now works as a FreeBSD developer. And he talked a bit about some of the differences and the advantages and disadvantages. Uh, he was planned to try to complain a little bit about how FreeBSD does on a laptop, except for everybody's FreeBSD laptop worked fine and his Linux laptop just <laughs> wouldn't work with the projector. Ah, whoops. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so he had to uh, elide that little bit of his uh, his presentation about how Linux was better on a laptop than FreeBSD. <laughs> uh, well, we caught up but, in recent years, so... Yes, uh, but he had some good points about um, things we can do or even just resources we can have to make it easier for uh, Linux developers to recover from that syndrome. <laughs> yeah, so these are the talks we want to see. Not bashing, but offering good things yeah, and exactly. solutions. These and are the things proposals. I miss, or these are the kind of translation guides I would have liked to have, or whatever. Mm. Yeah, that that's good to have, to have some kind of outside view into the project that we sometimes don't get. And yeah, uh, uh, then it came to actually the closing session already? No, there was lunch. A couple more things? Because I didn't spend too much time in talks this year. Uh, I basically told, or I spent some time at the FreeBSD Foundation table talking to people and handing out uh, a swag that we had. Um, but yeah, talking to people was one of the, the main things that I did at the conference. Yep. Uh, I was interested in the QCOW talk, but I don't remember what I ended up doing instead. I think I got pulled off into a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the spontaneous ones that uh, just form by uh, standing with the right people in the hallway track. Yep, uh, and then I did the CPU and memory virtualization on ARMv8 uh, and the closing session. Mm -hmm. Which was fantastic as always because uh, all of the cool things that were auctioned off and the people who were lucky winners, I guess. Yes, uh, I went <laughs> home with a 20-ounce uh, cookie. Oh, yes. Is it still uh, in one shape or one oh, big no. piece? It's been gone for a while. Uh, <laughs> a couple of funny stories there. One of them was I had to go to the grocery store and buy some Tupperware. 
and break the cookie into four pieces in order to take it home <laughs> like uh, a to pizza fit in my luggage uh <laughs> and i took one of those tupperware containers of it with me to the waterloo hackathon and shared oh yes ah oh, that's nice yeah there were a couple yes. of people there yeah that's the so uh, most of them got a little bit of bsd can cookie <laughs> very nice yeah yeah, that uh, we didn't mention in the show notes, but this was a, a, a post BSD can activity that uh, at Mast organized in uh, mm-hmm. uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, uh, for three days, I guess. Yeah. Was it four days? Yeah. So three. there was a little hackathon there at the university, and um, yeah, they got a couple of things done or improved. So that's a nice outcome after already a, a big conference, tiring at some point, but then people still got together with a day uh, in between um, to travel. And yeah, they they created some good work. And yeah, we want to thank uh, all the sponsors, all the supporters, uh, organizers, especially Dan Langell, the speakers and attendees for making this uh, yet another great BSD Can this year. Uh, Dan already announced that BSD Can 2020 will be from June 2nd to 6th. So um, start planning or book it at least or, or block it in your calendar. So you have no excuse, oh, I didn't know about it, or oh, that's the in, in June this year or next year. So yeah, you heard it here, June 2nd till 6th, 2020. All right, uh, in another headline that we have this uh, week is Open Indiana 2019-04 has been released. And yep. that's Open Indiana Hipster, mind you. Uh for the people who don't know, Open Indiana, it's a community-driven Elomos distribution. And uh, they have released a new Open Indiana release uh, with noticeable changes being Firefox updates to 60.63. Uh, for, uh, the VirtualBox packages were added, including the guest editions. Uh, Mate was updated to 1.22. Uh, IPS has received updates from Omnio SCE and Oracle IPS repos, including the automatic boot environment naming. Hmm, interesting. And they also got some OI-specific applications that have been ported from Python 2.7 or GTK2 to Python 3.5 or GTK3. And they have uh, more comprehensive release notes on their website. And uh, yeah, just give it a try. Download it. It's directly available from their website. And yeah, take a look. Yeah, it's uh, a decent Lumos distribution to try. Mm -hmm. They also have a quick demo video that we linked from our uh, show notes and uh, that gives you a good impression what the distribution looks like time for the news roundup in this 300th episode uh, overview of ZFS pools in FreeNAS over at the iX systems blog yeah uh, so they talk about how FreeNAS uses OpenZFS which handles about the disk and volume management and offers uh, various RAID levels, including mirrors, which is like RAID 10, uh, and um, RAID Z, which is kind of like RAID 5 or 6, but better. Uh, it says the file system is extremely flexible and secure uh, and offers various drive combinations, uh, checksum, snapshots, replication, etc. Um, for a deeper dive on ZFS itself, read the ZFS primer section of the FreeNAS documentation. But they also have some overview stuff here about how, uh, basically, what the building blocks of ZFS are, uh, starting with 
you have individual disks, you combine some number of disks together into a virtual device. So this can be two disks uh, that you're mirroring, or it could be three or four or five disks that you're doing like RAID Z1, which is like RAID 5, uh, or it could be even bigger, you know, like up to eight or 10 or more disks you're doing as RAID Z2 or RAID Z3 to get two or three levels of uh, redundancy. Then your pool is made up of one or more of these VDEVs. So, you know, if you have, say, eight drives, you can actually make a pool out of four mirrors. And each of those four mirror devs is two disks. And this way, when it comes time to write some data to the disk, you can be writing to all four sets of mirrors at once and get uh, really good speed. Uh, so they say uh, for suggested layouts, if you use the FreeNAS GUI and you can look at your disks and it offers you a bunch of options. Yeah, including uh, the um, spare disks as well. So you can say, I have these five disks. What can I do? What kind of configurations can I do? And they even, uh, let, let's say you do four disks in like a RAID 10 and the fifth disk could be the, um, the spare. spare one. Yep. So you can stripe data across disks uh, but the downside to that is that's no redundancy. So that means if uh, one of those disks dies, you've lost like every second block of every file, uh, which can, you know, usually means all your data is useless. Uh, yeah. Or you can do mirrors where you can have uh, two. Uh, the other thing is ZFS mirrors can be arbitrarily deep. Uh, so you can mirror two drives, but you can also mirror three, four, five drives, depending how paranoid you need to be. And that will have copies of the data on every drive. All data written to all the drives. Or, like we said, RAID 10 type setup, where you actually take um, a bunch of data, so a bunch of separate mirrors, and you stripe across the mirrors. So you still have redundancy, because uh, when you're striping across the VDEVs, each VDEV is responsible for not losing the data. And so each of those VDEVs is a mirror of two or three disks um, or more. And so each of those isn't going to lose the data, but by striping across them, you get the, the speed advantage. Uh, so basically, if you have a whole bunch of RAID Z2 VDEVs, you basically have RAID 60, which is usually the uh, the most expensive thing you can buy in hardware RAID. Or you can do it with RAID Z3, which is triple parity, which no hardware RAID is currently able to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that should make you sleep a lot better <laughs> at night. At the cost of a lot of money, of course. Yep. And yeah, they show a couple of screenshots and uh, how the GUI looks yes, like. The new, the new GUI in the newer FreeNAS uh, 11.2 or whatever is much better for this. In particular, when I needed to, I had a FreeNAS machine that had 144 disks in it. And I wanted, uh, there were basically four shelves of disks, and I wanted to make a RAID Z3 of 12 disks consisting of three disks from each shelf. So if any one shelf accidentally got disconnected, we'd only lose three drives out of the 12 in a RAID Z3, which mean it wouldn't fault and we would still be able to use it and catch up if you reconnect the shelf. Whereas... If I had just done all 12 drives from one shelf and the next drive is 12 drives from another shelf, then if you unhook one shelf, the whole pool would fall over. Not so good, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it was very nice to be able to do that. And the, the 
the new GUI lets you do that. The old one was very confusing. Uh, mm. But the new one works quite well. And I'm very happy with it. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. they have a... Ah, yes, they also have a couple of tutorial videos on the YouTube channel. So, uh, and of course, a comprehensive documentation going along with it. Right, because uh, the other thing I was doing, uh, not that setup, but a different customer, um, when they had disks loaded in both the front and the back of shelves, is uh, they were doing mirror pairs, and so I do a disk from the front and a disk from the back, because ones at the back tend to run a bit hotter, uh, and so they can have maybe a slightly higher failure rate, and so you don't want VDEVs made only of disks that have a higher failure rate. If you mix them, you'll be better off. Hmm. Um, and so mixing front and back that way, and then because the front has a few more slots than the back because of where the power supplies take up space at the back, I used the ones that didn't have a, a mate, basically, as the spares. Ah, yeah, that's a good consideration. So, yeah, storage <laughs> planning is good at the beginning because uh, you can, uh, if you don't um, be prepared or are not careful, then you can end up in a setup that might not be that future-proof or uh, you have to redo in a couple of months, years, weeks even. So doing do a little bit of uh, thinking before implementing your storage or creating your first pool uh, is uh, good in the long run. Yes, there are quite a few considerations um, and uh, I recommend, you know, FreeBSD Mastery ZFS to consider some of those. <laughs> yep, those, those are good books. And uh, yeah, they have a couple of uh, good recommendations in like performance tuning and redundancy and all these things uh, that are important in ZFS. And yeah, if you want to buy hardware, then definitely go to iX Systems and ask them for a quote, and they will have in most of their, or pretty much all of the storage systems, uh, ZFS included. So that makes sure you're not uh, losing data just because there's a, a faulty, uh, I don't know, firmware or something, or cable is broken because uh, ZFS does the end-to-end -end, uh, data integrity checking and correction. All right, uh, so next we have a blog post from uh, Jess Frizzell talking about why open source firmware is important for security. Uh, oh, so yeah. She says that she recently gave a talk at the conference Go to Chicago uh, on why open source firmware is important, and I thought it'd be nice to write a blog post about it as well. So first, uh, it gives a little background on the um, kind of the topology of a modern computer. Um, you know, originally there were only uh, so many rings and then we keep adding more levels and abstractions. But <laughs> in your typical setup, you have ring three, which is user space where you run your normal programs. And then uh, ring zero, where you have your operating system uh, and it's talking to hardware and so on. And so sometimes you end up with a ring negative one where you have the hypervisor, where you're actually doing, uh, you know, emulating the hardware and so the kernel doesn't actually talk directly to the hardware. It talks to a hypervisor who then talks to the hardware. But it turns out now we also have ring negative two, where you actually have your system management mode where your UEFI uh, and so on runs, and that's often proprietary. And that can be a problem. And then if you remember from a year or two ago, we got all scared of ring negative three, the management engine, 
even more proprietary code running on a different CPU built into your system somewhere. Yeah, wondering to rule them all. Yeah, and so it's <laughs> that we've had to keep adding these negative rings because we keep inserting stuff that's more privileged than the kernel uh, and maybe not even uh, transparent to the kernel. Mm -hmm. Directly on hardware, yeah. yeah. That's the security nightmare. Well, the kernel, the kernel thinks it's running directly on the hardware, but it turns out there can be stuff in the middle mucking you about. Yeah. So it talks a bit about that. But uh, really, the point of the talk, uh, now that you have this in mind, um, and the fact that you know all these rings have exploits, and we've seen the exploits for the management systems and so on. Uh, so how do we do better? They talk about NERF, the non-extensible reduced firmware. And it's what the open source firmware community is working towards. The goal are to make firmware less capable of doing harm and make its actions more visible uh, to the rest of the computer. Basically, they aim to remove all runtime components, but currently with the Intel management engine, uh, they cannot remove all, but they can take away the web server and the IP stack, which at least uh, keeps it from being exposed to the network. Um, they can also remove the UEFI IP stack and other drivers, as well as the Intel management and the UEFI self-reflash capability, so that if someone does manage to compromise the UEFI, they can't make it persistent by actually overwriting it. So they talk about uh, ME Cleaner, which is a management engine thing that basically erases parts of it. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about switching away from your current... Uh, the built-in boot bits in your uh, motherboard to using something U-boot or core boot and trying to make those more um, first class. In particular, you know, nowadays the UEFI kernel running underneath your operating system is actually more lines of code than Linux uh, doing who knows what to your computer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so there are efforts in that area to make that better or more open so you can see what the code is doing or at least uh, have control over it at a certain point. And yeah, I've seen people using U-Boot on their uh, computers. I mean, I didn't see much of it. They they were running yeah. just fine. It's just the different boot sequence. Right, and I've heard of people doing core boot on like really old ThinkPads, but not on modern ones. I think mm. somebody maybe got it to the X220, but you need like special hardware to in like clip onto the chip or something to reflash it. Uh, a bit. Mm. Uh, but then they talk about other firmware. You know, uh, We need open source firmware for network uh, cards and SSDs and the BMCs, the baseboard management controllers that we use for IPMI and so on for machines. Uh, so there's apparently some work being done at the Open Compute Project on NIC 3.0 and that making that available. Uh, for BMCs, there's OpenBMC and MicroBMC. Uh, both of which there are other blog posts about you can talk about or go read. Uh, but really, the point of the article is about root of trust. Um, if you're going to trust the VM, you have to trust what the VM's running on. And so basically, all your trust keeps going levels and levels deeper until you have what's called the root of trust, the, the thing you actually trust, so that you can trust the things that run on top of it, so you can, run the uh, so you can trust the things that run on top of that, and so on. So they say, the goal of a root of trust should be to verify that the software installed in every component of the hardware is the software that you actually intended. Uh, this way, you know without a doubt uh, and 
verify if hardware has actually been hacked. Since we have very little to no visibility into the code running in a lot of the places on our hardware, it's very hard to do this. So how do we really know uh, that the firmware in a component is not vulnerable or isn't being exploited? Uh, well, we can't unless it's all open source. And then, you know, in that case, we could build code we've read uh, and have a binary we trust and put it on the machine. Mm. So every cloud uh, provider and vendor seems to have their own way of doing something like root of trust. Microsoft has theirs called uh, Cerberus, Google's is called Titan, and Amazon's is called Nitro. I seem to assume an explicit amount of trust in their proprietary code, uh, you know, code Amazon has seen, but you cannot see, um, you know, this leaves with not a great feeling. Uh, wouldn't it be better to be able to use all open source code? Then we can verify without a doubt that the code you can read and build yourself is the code that's actually running on the hardware and in the various firmwares. Uh, we could then verify that a machine is in the correct state without a doubt of it being vulnerable or having a backdoor. And also, uh, raises a question of what if some of the smaller cloud providers like DigitalOcean or Packet.net uh, have as their root of trust, and how does that work? And you know, what do you do for root of trust in the case of uh, you're not an Amazon-sized company where you're going to get custom hardware built? Hmm. Yeah, that's a problem. Yep. And I talk a bit about platform firmware resiliency. Uh, and so on. And actually, it turns out it came up a bit in the uh, working group at BSDCAN about the boot code stuff, is if you're actually going to do verified boot, where you're making sure that uh, basically each step in the boot process verifies that the next step is the checksum it expects it to be, it can be harder to do the thing like, oh, well, we're updating the boot code and we need to decide which version of the boot code to boot. Uh, and mm. having that change could disrupt the verified boot system. Uh, I see, yeah. have to consider some of that. Hmm. Okay, okay yeah, that's some food for thought. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also have in the uh, section here a open sense new release 19-1-8, uh, uh, I guess that's the yeah, the, the year. Mm -hmm. um, they write about uh, the release in a little message going, good day all to you. Um, this update addresses several privilege uh, escalation issues like everyone has to do recently uh, in the access control implementation and new memory disclosure issues on Intel CPUs. And um, the full patch notes are also provided. They basically cover all the recently uh, discovered CVEs about privilege escalation bugs and um, some uh, system hardening, I guess, and some improvements, uh, bug fixes here and there. So, yeah, a couple, it's basically a, a patch release or a bug fix release, not many new features, mm -hmm. but fixing some of the uh, privilege escalation stuff is good to have anyway. Yes, so those, that's bugs in OpenSense itself, and then they're also uh, applying the Intel security fixes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Small things like uh, in Spanish, say hola to Spanish as the newest available GUI language. <laughs> See, yep. that people have translated now and can enjoy it now in Spanish-speaking countries. 
Uh, and then we have WireGuard on OpenBSD. Uh, oh. so if you've not heard of it, WireGuard is this new uh, kind of slimline uh, VPN client and server. Uh, and so, so earlier this week, uh, does it say whose blog this is? Ah, Jasper. Uh, um, imported a port of WireGuard into the OpenBSD ports tree. At the moment, we have the userland daemon and tools available. The in-kernel implementation is only available on Linux. At the time of writing, there are packages available for OpenBSD current. Uh, mm -hmm. So Jason Donenfeld, uh, the WireGuard author, has worked to support OpenBSD and WireGuard. And as such, his uh, post to the ports list last year got me interested in working on WireGuard. Since then, they have toyed uh, with WireGuard on OpenBSD. Uh, and now there's actually a port, so you can do it. Uh, the setup uh, as follows. You have two OpenBSD peers, of which uh, we'll dub WireGuard 1 and WireGuard 2. Uh, and so WireGuard 2 is the client. So the WireGuard service on uh, WireGuard 1 is listening on an IP address. And then within the VPN, uh, the subnet is as follows. They have 10.0.0.1 and 0.0.2. So they just install WireGuard-Go and WireGuard-Tools, because uh, the client is written in Go. Uh, or the, the user space client, there will, uh, maybe there will be eventually be a kernel-side one. Hmm. So okay. on the server, uh, they generate a key pair for each of the nodes. So they use WireGuard keygen uh, and make a server key and a client. Uh, both a public and private key. Then uh, in order for the server to forward packets, they enable forwarding on the server. And they set up uh, a NAT in PF so that uh, the machine on the other end of the VPN will be able to get out to the internet over the VPN. Uh, then they just do ifconfig tune to up as enable WireGuard and tell it to use the tune to interface. And then once WireGuard is running, it's good to go. They configure the um, WireGuard server, tell it what port to listen on and who's allowed to connect. Uh, and you get that setting up. And then on the client, you create uh, a tunnel interface and enable the WireGuard uh, service as well and set its config knowing uh, its key, the public key of the server, uh, and where it should connect to. And then once that's running, uh, you'll now have packets going. Ah, nice. Well encrypted, of course, between the two endpoints. Yep. And they show how to set up the routing uh, and how to do stuff. Anyway, they say uh, WireGuard aims uh, to be easier to set up and faster than OpenVPN. And while I haven't been able to verify that it's faster, uh, the uh, it's definitely easier to set up. Uh, most documentation out there is for Linux, so I had to figure out the WireGuard Go service and tune parameters, but all in all, it's easier uh, than doing OpenVPN, especially the client configuration on iOS, which I didn't cover here, but basically install the stuff, set up the... Oh, actually, what they did is they uh, installed a QR code library on OpenBSD, mm. uh, cat the client configuration, and then encode it with as a QR code. And then you can just have your phone snap a picture of that, and it will auto-configure the client on the phone. Oh, cool. Yeah. Being able to uh, 
Set up VPN clients by having them look at a QR code is super easy compared to writing config files, especially on something like a phone. <laughs> yep, that's a very nice way of uh, making it easy for users. All right. Beastie bits, here they come. We have a Serenity OS uh, for you. Uh, this is a new found for us. And it's basically a graphical Unix-like operating system for x86 computers. That's nothing special in this regard. But um, they have basically written their own operating systems, as far as we could tell from the uh, feature list yeah, here. It, it appears to be written from scratch in C++. Yeah, with a two-clause BSD license. And f judging from the screenshot, that looks, interestingly enough... Pretty normal. Um like the 90s like operating system? Uh, you know, if it provides the POSIX like interfaces and can run regular apps, that makes it pretty useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, it helps a lot to build an operating system if you don't have to write all the applications by just being compatible with the applications that already exist. Yeah, and they write it flatters with sincerity by stealing beautiful ideas from various other systems. So, yep. yeah. Give it a spin and uh, see what it can do. I mean, it uh, supports IPv4, ext2 file systems, and so yeah, it's it's useful. Mm -hmm. uh, next, we have a note from the Dragonfly BSD Digest saying uh, because of ongoing work in the PMAP uh, by Matt Dillon, uh, building vKernels may not work uh, for a short period of time because. Uh, of some recent changes, but they expect that will be resolved in a couple of days. Uh, so if you're trying to do vKernels on Dragonfly on head, you might want to watch out for a couple of days as that mm. might break. Okay, so that's uh, a good information for people who are running the Dragonflies of this world. Yep, and then we have a post from the Vintage Computer Federation, uh, and they have uh, here Brian Kernigan interviewing Ken Thompson. Huh, interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's on YouTube. Talks about everything from Plan 9 to Go uh, and winning a Turing Award and so on. So definitely worth checking out. I'm going to have to find time to watch that myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's certainly interesting. Uh, looking back or them looking forward. Um also, uh, we have improvements in forking, threading, and signal code in NetBSD on their blog, uh, where they basically um, describe more improvements uh, with their signaling code in NetBSD kernel, covering the corner cases with regression tests, and improving the documentation. They have been working at the level of system calls now, uh, like forking, threading, and handling these with the GDB, the GNU debugger, and uh, tracing syscalls as well. And some work happens behind the scenes as they support the work uh, of Michael Gorney of LLDB and Ptrace features. And all the details are in the blog post, which is uh, long with some code examples. So if you're interested in that, then uh, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah, and then talking about uh, implementing the clone syscall, which is a Linux-compatible syscall, kind of like a fork or vfork, but with more customizable options. Mm. Uh, and uh, factor, uh, refactoring a bunch of the code and other improvements. If you're interested in uh, what they did and how it might apply to other BSDs, uh, you should go read it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, more Dragonfly news uh, because Dragonfly 5.4.3 is out and uh, available to download. And they have, of course, uh, release notes for you. Um, of course, has a fix for an Intel floating point bug in there that you might have heard. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, check out the uh, release notes, which we didn't cover in this show, um, but it's definitely worth getting the latest release uh, of Dragonfly. Uh, and then lastly, we have an, uh, over at the Odroid magazine, they have running NetBSD on Odroid C2. Huh. And it okay. says, uh, Ever since I learned that NetBSD had announced they were going to make ARM a tier one architecture, I've been following the development work. A few weeks ago, uh, NetBSD's ARM developers, uh, one of them, uh, Jared McNeil, stated that the generic 64 kernel now supports the AmLogic S905 SoC, which is what's used on the Odroid C2. Ethernet, USB, SD, and EMC or EMMC are all working. Uh, so the author here immediately obtained an image and started some testing. I wanted to report my findings and encourage others to try it out. It is not too often that the Odroid gets uh, a new non-Linux operating system. Mm-hmm. Yes, so and running uh, NetBSD 8.99, which is basically what they name uh, Nine Current. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say in a couple of weeks uh, that I've been using it, even though currently it is a development image, it does appear to be stable. I've not had any problems with the Ethernet, USB, or the SD. There are no frame buffer drivers yet, uh, so all the interaction is done with a serial console or SSH. Although uh, recently both ARMv7 and ARM64 for NetBSD have been uh, moved over to the EFI boot using the latest version of U-Boot. And there's actually a recent FOSDEM U-Boot presentation if you want to check that out. Yeah, so NetBSD is certainly true to its uh, slogan, uh, of course it runs NetBSD. And that's so true now for the Odroid. Okay, that's been our Beastie Bits for this week. Time for the feedback and questions. Uh, uh, Of course, this section will be very empty in the future if you don't send us uh, your questions, any feedback that you have, show ideas, uh, things you want to know from us or ask us. Send all of this to feedback at bsdnow.tv and then we'll have more to cover in future episodes in this part. Uh, Paolo did that uh, as our first uh, one for this week uh, about laptops. He writes, hello, Benedict and Alan. I was just filling out the 2019 community survey. Excellent. Uh, you're one of many people that did that. Um, and he, uh, oh yeah, noticed a question on user laptop brands. Question I have is if the FreeBSD Foundation has considered in the past or is currently considering uh, reaching out to any laptop vendor to make a BSD-friendly laptop. So I know IX Systems has looked at this in the past. Uh, the problem is you're looking at having to commit to ordering like 10,000 laptops to get anybody to pay attention. Break and even. the other yeah. problem there is no matter what brand it is, if you don't produce them all at once, then there's no guarantee that the some of the components won't be changed because of what's available. Mm. You, know, you might not be able to get that particular Wi-Fi chip. You'll get a slightly different model that maybe or maybe won't work with the driver you have and so on. So it's very difficult. Uh, the biggest thing is just that, yeah, the... Even if we could convince every BSD user to buy the same laptop, which probably we couldn't, um, it might actually be worse for BSD because uh, it would mean that you know you'd have to buy the free BSD laptop for it to work. Whereas 
currently with BSP people spread across a bunch of different kinds of laptops, uh, we have better chance of more of them working. In general, uh, I've had good luck with the ThinkPads. Uh, and there's enough BSD people have them that most of the things work. Mm. Um, Dells too. Yeah, so like uh, with my um, ThinkPad here, the X270, the Wi-Fi works, the USB works, the sound works, uh, the Ethernet works, I don't know, everything works. Suspended resume works, accelerated graphics, NVMe, uh, the booting, everything. It's quite good. Uh, mm. Interesting one was at BSD Can. Uh, somebody came who had just bought a new, I think a, it was an HP with a Ryzen CPU, uh, an AMD, and it was locking up during boot. Uh, but after heroic efforts by John Baldwin and Mark Johnston in the Hacker Lounge on the last late night at night at BSD Can, uh, yeah, uh, I was just watching, and uh, we stayed up <laughs> until three in the morning. Uh, but we got a fix so that uh, it boots. Mm -hmm. uh, so we fixed that, and that will go into 12, uh, 1, and uh, 13. And actually, I don't know if uh, John's had time to think about it because uh been very busy. But if we can sneak uh, that fix into 11.3, that might be useful. Although uh, the downside there is there's always the chance that any change like that is going to break some other laptop. And so it can be kind of difficult to... Uh, to want to risk yeah. slipping that into 11.3. Mm. But yeah, but the more laptop grab, choices. Uh, if you grab a recent snapshot of head, uh, then almost everything I can think of works. You know, the biggest one that's likely to get you right now is Wi-Fi if it's not Intel. If it's Broadcom, you might be in for pain. And mm. some of that, I don't know, they have a killer nick or whatever is making some weird Wi-Fi one. And... Uh, those are the ones that are likely to bite you. But in general, laptops do tend to work. Yeah. I remember Colin Percival uh, buying a System76 a couple of years yep. ago. Been pretty I'm happy with it. That. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so these are the uh, less mainstream vendors who are yeah, still... I've seen uh, people using Dells and Asus's and uh, HP's and so on. And generally, most things work. Uh, mm. You know, graphics was always really the one that was holding us back. So... Uh, if you can get lucky uh, and have the right kind of Wi-Fi, pretty much everything else just works. Yeah, so definitely the, the uh, laptop and especially graphic support got way better in recent years. So there's less uh, over, can only run on certain brands or certain laptop models even. And that got a lot better thanks to some uh, people's efforts. Also in the suspended resume area. Uh, should, we, should I read the rest one of this? Uh, uh, because sure. pretty much cover everything. So um, uh, the, it continues. Uh, by BSD friendly, he means hardware that doesn't have anything locked on BIOS or, or UEFI to nowadays, preventing any OS to be loaded and installed, and hardware devices not requiring blobs uh, or any of the worst case. Um, so blobs is different. Like most things now use. Uh, instead of burning the firmware into a chip and putting it on the motherboard, just have it loaded by the CPU. And so that's a file that gets distributed as part of the operating system. It's not that evil, really. It just saves mm -hmm. some money and makes it so that you can actually update it without having to um, flash stuff on the board. So I'm not as worried about blobs for Wi-Fi firmware and so on. 
Huh. Yeah. So, and as we talked about this, um, these efforts in, um, you know, extensible firmware or custom written firmware that boots it is also uh, tying into that. Um, yeah, he doesn't expect any vendor to go extra miles to fully support every different operating system they're not used to. Uh, and they know. Go on to say uh, they would uh, personally prefer to buy a laptop that maybe wasn't 100% what they were looking for uh, in terms of hardware, but being 100% FreeBSD friendly. Um, yeah, but. I don't know. I got both with my X270. I got to pick what I wanted and it worked with FreeBSD. It mostly comes down to be careful with the Wi-Fi you pick and pretty much everything else is relatively generic nowadays, right? Like NVMe and SATA interfaces are pretty straightforward. Uh, Ethernet, you know, a lot of laptops don't come with it anymore, but if they do, it generally works. Um, you know, if you want Bluetooth, that's kind of special. I don't know. I've never used it. Um, and yeah, it's pretty much graphics and Wi-Fi and most graphics options work nowadays, right? With uh, the DRM drivers providing support for Intel and AMD and NVIDIA has always had good drivers on FreeBSD, you're down to just the Wi-Fi is the only thing you have to worry about. And uh, now, if you get a laptop that doesn't happen to have uh, the BIOS not letting you switch the Wi-Fi card out, then you can buy an Intel uh, little mini PCIe uh, Wi-Fi chip for 10 or 15 bucks and slap it in uh, and have Wi-Fi that works. Mm, sure. And I know, like, Gavin was working on getting FreeBSD working well on the, I think it was the Lenovo IdeaPad or something, which is like this $250 laptop. Or the Yoga uh, one? Oh, I think that, maybe. There were, yeah. he was, it was a really inexpensive one. Yeah, uh, some of the beginner notebooks. Uh, yeah. But yeah, all of these could be valuable uh, or valuable laptops for, for beginners. I mean, for a little bit of BSD here and there, perfectly fine. But yes, sadly, uh, it's hard to get the vendors to pay attention without really large numbers. Mm. And yeah, so uh, he closes with, I would personally prefer to buy a laptop that may or may not Which be 100%. Ah, okay, sorry. Um yeah, so the next question comes from uh, a listener. listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so that he, you see the reason why in a moment. Um, so the listener writes, I've recently been diagnosed with major depression. One of the few things I'm able to enjoy right now is your show. Thanks very much for, uh, for continuing to do it. Thank you. Uh, there's always something in the show I can take a little inspiration from. I feel like it's one of the things that's going to get me through this. Thanks again. Oh, wow. That's uh, good to hear. Uh, yeah, good luck with your uh, recovery. I know there are, are dark days and less darker days, but um, I guess um, small things like our show could uh, help you in that a little bit. So, uh, yeah, continue your efforts. Um, there's definitely light at the, at the horizon coming up. And, um, yeah, uh, enjoy our show. That's one reason more for us to, to keep doing it. Uh, last but not least is Bastian with a question about to extend a pool and lower the RAM footprint. Ah, I see set of S here. Uh, goes like this. Hi, everyone. I hope you don't mind me sending long emails with two questions. No, not at all. Uh, question number one. Uh, as long as I can remember, everyone gives the same advice how to extend a pool. If you have a RAID set 2 with four disks, you add four more disks in RAID set 2 configurations. 
And if you have a pool with two mirrors, where each mirror contains two disks, you add four more disks in the same mirror setup. Um, I thought that would... So in mirrors, you can add just one more mirror at a time. Like, basically, you add one VDEV at a time, and it should be the same as the previous VDEVs. So if you have two mirrors of two drives each, you can just add two more drives as a third mirror, and then later, even two more drives as a fourth mirror, and so on. You don't have to double every time. Uh, same with like if you have raid if you have two raid z twos of four discs each, and then you add a third one, you just add four more discs, not eight more discs. You don't have to, yeah, you know, double every time. You just have to add one vdev at a time, and the vdev should be uh, the same as the previous vdevs. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to be the same size, but they should be the same layout because that affects uh, how the blocks get arranged. Ideally, yeah. So he made some testing, and he provided our uh, zpool status outputs for us uh, with the um, configuration for the mirrors. And so, uh, uh, what, what do we have here? Oh yeah. So after that, he did, so he had a four-way mirror. No, three-way. Ah, so he was saying that uh, he had heard people say that you can't add disks to a vdev; you can only add more vdevs to a pool. This is true for RAID Z, but for uh, mirrors, you can use the zpool attach command to extend or shrink a mirror. So you can actually do a mirror with two disks and then attach a third disk and then attach a fourth disk. And then you can detach the disks uh, down to when there's only one disk and it stops being a mirror and becomes a uh, stripe. Mm. Yeah, okay. So that's the confusion. Uh, so VDEF, uh, right Z versus uh, mirrors. Okay, then his uh, second question basically goes, I want to well, use... Hold on. V- he's in, anyway, he's saying, so at first he started with a single disc pool and then added a three disc mirror to it. So he's actually got a stripe and then a mirror of three discs. This is ah, not okay. a good configuration right. because no. you will end up with, uh, if the stripe disc dies, you lose half of all your data. What you'd want to do is use zpool attach to attach one of these discs to the single disk, making one mirror, and then it add the other two disks as a second mirror. Ah, yes. And if that happens in production, uh, is there a way out? I guess the um, device right. I mean, And then this, the second half was, he also did it the other way around, started with a pool that had a three-disk mirror, uh, and then added an individual disk to it. You'll notice when you tried to do that, it told you no. It made you use the dash force flag to mm-hmm. actually shoot yourself in the foot like this. So it tried to stop you, but you went ahead anyway. So in this situation, uh, if in this particular one where you have a three-disc mirror and a single disc, you have the option of using zpool detach to uh, rip one of the discs off of that three-deep mirror, making it into just a two-deep mirror, and then attaching that disc to the single disc and upgrading it from a single disc to a mirror. And then you'd have a RAID 10 with two mirrors. Um, but if, for example, you had done something, so what most people do is they have a pool, maybe multiple RAID Zs or whatever, and then they go to add an SSD as an L2 arc or something uh, and accidentally add it as a stripe. Uh, and now new data starts getting written to this non-redundant VDEV uh, and causes problems. And worse, they often tend to then, oh, try to rip the disk out. But now the pool won't import because one of the drives is missing and it has some of the data on it. Yeah, that's um, not good. And so this is why the 
the device removal code was invented. Uh, well, one of the reasons. So you can, if you're using FreeBSD 12 or newer, I don't think 11.2 has it, but maybe it does. I don't remember. Um, but you can actually use the device evacuation feature to move all the data off of a disk and remove it from the pool. It does not work with RAID Z. It only works with stripes or mirrors. But you can move all the data off the disk to other disks and remove it. Uh, the way it actually works internally is the one disk becomes virtual uh, and you make a mapping table in RAM that says, you know, this couple hundred megabytes of the disk is now on this other disk and this the next hundred megabytes are over here. Uh, and so it can take up a bit of space. I think um, Dave in the chat room did this just the other day. Um, he moved a couple hundred gigs of data and it took 37 megabytes of memory. Uh, that will, and then as you overwrite that data or change it, then it will, the amount of memory it takes will keep going down as it replaces those entries in the remapping table uh, with the, when it rewrites the data, it will write it with the actual address rather than the address on the drive that's not there anymore. Uh, and Dave says, now it's down to 18 megabytes for the 750 gigs of data he moved on the disk he took out of the pool. Hmm. Uh, so yes, while you can do these things where you mix and match in ZFS, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to wish you didn't. Uh, so yes, um, for a home setup, mirrors are the best setup because you can add two disks at a time that way. Yeah. And each time you do zpool create, use the dash n flag so you can see uh, what the pool will look like without actually doing it. So you can uh, spot errors quicker before actually making them. Okay. Uh, yeah, then so the he says uh, that the ability to do this gave him chills because it's flexible, but you could shoot yourself in the foot. Uh, yeah. Well, when ZFS says you shouldn't do this, but do dash F uh, if you are sure, ZFS told you not to do it and you did it anyway. For a uh, reason. So, yeah. you know, it it tried to stop you, but you know, as, as the saying goes, Unix doesn't stop you doing something stupid because that would also stop you doing something clever. Um, yeah. In this case, it's not clever. It's not Don't clever. do it. But, anyway. <laughs> not at all. Um, but yes, you can recover from this using newer versions of ZFS. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, or prevent it in the first place. So yes, to his second question. Uh, he wants to use a BSD on a low memory, uh, like a random access memory system. Uh, the considered operating systems are FreeBSD, FreeNAS, and Project Trident uh, slash TrueOS. Uh, all vanilla flavor, no special compiling. What do you get out of the box? Uh, they all run on OpenZFS. Uh, it will have a Z pool of approximately five terabyte of data attached to it. What can be changed across the board in order to reduce memory footprint? What to look for in a specific operating system? What settings to change to limit a process or a feature to use little RAM? Anything to tweak how to limit ZFS to use less RAM? Right, so ZFS, uh, the tunables are vfs.zfs.com arc underscore um, max? arc max yeah. you mean yeah yeah so there's arc max and arcs min so you can't lower the max to less than the min so likely you want to lower the min first mm -hmm. um and yeah yeah so you can tell zfs to only use 512 megabytes of ram for its cache that will leave more for the rest of the operating system um it will impact performance a bit, but it'll probably be fine. So then if, yeah, if you just set your arc max to 512 and your arc min to say 
a quarter of that, like 128 megs. Uh, you probably have to set them in first because the defaults are higher and you don't want, uh, uh, if you try to set the max too low, it'll be like, hey, you can't set the max to less than the minimum and refuse it. So set the minimum lower first and then the max. Uh, there's not, like most of FreeBSD auto-tunes based on the amount of RAM. Uh, the parameters look at how much memory you have and decide what, how many V nodes to keep and all this other stuff. In general, it can come down to run top, see what you think is using too much. But in the end, you know, there's not much that's going to change how much memory you use. It's like which applications you run will affect how much memory you use. And mm. then ZFS, uh, ZFS needs at least 64 megabytes of memory in order to be able to handle uh, transaction groups of the regular block sizes. Uh, but 64 megs is not that much to ask. Yeah, yeah. And he's using that as, an, as a thought experiment more or as a learning experience, he writes. And, yes. um, Lots yeah. of people run uh, ZFS on VMs with one or two gigs of memory and it's fine. Yeah, Raspberry Pi 3 here, so... Uh, in that case, it really comes down to you do want to use a 64-bit version of the OS, uh, which with FreeNAS and Project Trident is the only option, yeah. so it's fine. But because the um, uh, the address space needs to be large enough to deal with fragmentation and so on, because uh, mm -hmm. ZFS is going to do a lot of allocations. Yeah. So yeah, so he wants to limit the RAM usage to only 512 megabytes of RAM, and yeah. That's pretty much it. The, the ArcMax is the, or the ArcMin. Yeah. Okay. So he writes, thank you and danke. Excellent. I see what you did there. Uh, that's appreciated. Uh, thank you. And if you have further questions, uh, like everyone else, send that out to feedback at bsdnow.tv and this show will have future sections in this part. So thank you for watching episode 300 and sticking with us these 300 episodes. And I hope uh, that you will still be around in episode 600. Oh boy, when is that? I don't want to calculate that up. Uh, but thanks for watching and listening and see you next week.